We here at the Penny and James Podcast pride ourselves in timely, entertaining, funny opening segments. However, when presented with something so kinetic and over-the-top as Bob Clampett cartoons, we got nothing. We cannot, via audio and our cornball senses of humor, convey the energy of one of these cartoons, so we're not going to dare try. We could try drinking five cups of coffee. You remember what happened last time we did that? Oh, yeah. None of the recording was intelligible. (laughs) And I jumped through the roof during a rainstorm. I told you I'm a lightweight when it comes to caffeine. Yeah, the worst part was that was decaf. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And we are back in the realm of theatrical cartoons with our second episode on our favorite Looney Tunes character, Daffy Duck. And brother, you can't get much further from the Chuck Jones interpretation of Daffy than Bob Clampett's. It is amazing how drastically different those two versions of Daffy are in comparison to... I mean, a lot of the characters evolve, but... I I feel like those two almost feel like two completely different characters almost. And this episode is actually going to kind of serve a dual purpose because while we definitely want to look at this specific incarnation of Daffy Duck, this is also going to be our, our main run of historical background on Bob Clampett. It's our best opportunity to really talk about him in particular. A Bob Clampett cartoon. As a kid fascinated by the silent comedy stars of Hollywood's golden age, Clampett always knew he wanted to be a filmmaker, developing an interest in cartooning at age 12. His familiarity with popular media led him to getting his aunt, who was in the doll-making business, in touch with Walt and Roy Disney to make the first-ever Mickey Mouse plush toys. Wow. And to think where Disney is now. And while Disney himself loved the guy's spirit... Walt had enough animators, so Clampett wound up at Harmonizing Studio, where Leon Schlesinger brought him over to Warner Brothers, where Clampett drew secondary characters for Lady Play Your Mandolin, the very first Merry Melody. Wasn't that the one that had uh, the, the bootleg, like, Mickey as a fox character? Yep, foxy. And, in the era of Prohibition, it featured a lot of drunk shenanigans. Oh boy. <laughs> so when Harmon and Ising split from Warner Brothers to go over to MGM, Clampett stayed with Leon, for whom in 1934 he drew the original sketches of Porky Pig, which would be refined by Friz Freeling for his short, I Haven't Got a Hat. Uh, of course, uh, Bob Clampett would not take all of the credit for that, now would he? <sighs> <sighs> uh, if that foreshadowing gets any darker, we're going to have a blackout. But Clampett would be there for many pivotal moments in Warner history, including being alongside Tex Avery when their part of the animation unit moved into Termite Terrace. And it would be under Avery that Clampett first animated the former's creation, Daffy Duck, for the cartoon short Porky's Duck Hunt. Oh, don't let it worry you, Skipper. Oh, I'm just a crazy darn fool duck. <laughs> and, boy, yeah. Did people love that duck? They love that duck! Mm-hmm. When Clampett received his own unit as a director in 1936, and then when he inherited Texas' unit when Avery left for MGM in 1941, he developed a loose, anarchic, violent, and borderline surreal style that just got more rubbery and wild with each passing year. His work was so popular in theaters that Schlesinger encouraged Warner's other directors to do things more like him. Of course, that that wouldn't go to Bob Clampett's head or anything. While Clampett would indeed garner fame for creating Tweety Bird, originally named Orson, and sending Porky to Wacky Land, it's the not-so-humble opinion of this particular podcaster that Daffy Duck was Bob's truest muse. I'm willing to agree with that. 
Daffy was a character that Bob, in building off Tex Avery's own interpretation of the screwy duck, could completely detach from reality in a way that Bugs and Porky either never could or needed a plot device to actually pull off. Yeah, it literally felt like in these days, Daffy could do literally anything. And did. So, fair warning, folks. Two middle-aged cornballs describing these manic cartoons can never be as funny as the actual cartoons themselves. So, uh, go watch them. Then come back to us for the historical context. And biting analysis. Or me just noticing things that James missed. Well, let's get started with an earlier Clampett take on Daffy, Porky's Last Stand, written by Warren Foster. Unless otherwise indicated, voices are by Mel Blanc, music by Carl Stalling, and so on. Yeah, this is back in the short-lived era where Daffy had the weird rings around his eyes. and It just looks weird and kind of off-putting. I'm glad they didn't stick with that. Mm-hmm. So, at Porky's Fried Chicken Stand, where our fried chicken has that real foul taste. That's Ooh, a winning slogan. The hens are laying eggs on the awning. And the fresh eggs are, and we quote, hard-boiled eggs from dead-end hens. Wow. And seem we once so dead-end that they had a duck for a baby. Yeah, the chickens hatch singing in tune, and that duck just squawks. Now... This duckling isn't Daffy. He's actually working alongside Porky in the stand proper, with the song being sung by the, the background singers taking on a more Latin rhythm as Daffy dries dishes with his posterior. And of course, he happily breaks a bunch at the end. Of course he does. Uh, Pemmy, <laughs> you, you just got ideas for new art concepts, didn't you, from this short? Maybe... Oh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> oh, boy. Hang on to that one, too. <laughs> so, in the next scene, a customer is angrily demanding service. And we notice in the background, the special is Sheridan salad with lots of oomph and no dressing. This is a reference that would be lost on modern viewers, the majority at least. And it's a reference to actress Anne Sheridan was under Warner contract at the time, and uh, this quote is per Wikipedia. In March 1939, Warner Brothers announced that Sheridan had been voted by a committee of 25 men as the actress with the most oomph in America. Oomph was described as a certain indefinable something that commands male interest. Damn, I need to get some oomph. <laughs> I wish I had a follow-up line that wouldn't peg me as a sexist pig, so uh, we're going to go on talking about the not-sexist pig. Porky. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're not going to talk about uh, how what's ordered from Daffy? Well, right, right. So the customer wants a good hamburger, and he wants it bad. And Daffy goes to fill the order with a fridge literally labeled hamburgers. Too bad the mice ate them all. Yeah. You're a wee bit late, so the sign says. Signed by the mice, so at least you're kind of polite about it. But to get to a rhyme, they they preface it by saying, Greetings, gate. You're a wee bit late. Hey! Who calls people gate? Uh, it may have been some slang back then. Maybe. I can't blame the customer. I know there's a lot of days where I really do want a frickin' hamburger. As long as you're not paying me Tuesday. <laughs> I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. I wish I could do Wimpy's voice, honestly. So as Daffy starts scrambling around, Porky is serving a cup of coffee and two two cackles to another customer, pouring the coffee and the cup from the same dispenser all at once. Impressive. Where, where's our modern-day tech version of that? Got me. Closest we've got are those K-cups. Wasteful little things. Now, the fresh-from-the-hen eggs, though, the second one he cracks open is a baby chick who loudly protests the hot-foot treatment of the frying pan, returning to his mother and placing a do-not-disturb sign on her tail. You know what? That's fair. <laughs> yeah. No one likes someone messing with their mother's tail. Oof, dear. Even if that mother has oomph. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile... Daffy has found a solution to his beef with the lack of beef. A baby calf. I guess he's going to seal the veal. 
Ooh, dear. Mallet in hand, he goes off to perform the unfortunate truth of the meat industry. Following the calf into a barn and pulling out by the tail an adult bull. Oh. At least he didn't try to milk it. I mean, he could. <laughs> That's all I'm going to leave at that. <laughs> Basically. Daffy tries to make nice and pat it on the head, but the bull sharpens its horns, or rather, they sharpen themselves. I, I do like the, the bull chase scene where like Daffy's like, He's running away from the bull, but still going, Oh, no, 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 don't make me mad! Don't make me mad! Racing back into the stand, Daffy tries to warn Porky, but the pig thinks it's just a salesman. The truth nearly hits him in the face, but Porky shuts the door in the nick of time. I, I, I do like how nonchalantly, like, Porky just slams that door. It's like he doesn't even, like, respond. It's just like, sees the bull and just like, Nope! <laughs> The bull starts to timidly walk off, but snaps out of it and returns to his brute force attack, chasing Porky through the stand and into the farmland. Poor Porky. Daffy puts on a matador act, calling out for Ferdinand and waving the requisite cape around. Ferdinand the bull? That doesn't look like John Cena. How do you know? I've never seen him. <laughs> you can't see. The, the, you know that's a lot of bull. <laughs> So the bull launches himself like an artillery shell, and as Daffy and Porky get out of the way, the beast strikes the stand and the chickens. The end result? The bull is knocked silly, and the hens and roosters are now a merry-go-round. That keeps pulling rings out of the bull's nose. Yep, brass rings. Hence the phrase, grab the brass ring. I Certainly think... something John Cena would know about. <laughs> All I know is that that looks painful for the bull. To be sure. I picked this one to contrast the other cartoons that we would be looking at. You know, something earlier in Clampett's time with these characters. And it's kind of a par for the course cartoon for this era. I mean, there's a few good gags, including a few that hint at the route Clampett would take in his later creations. But it's... Still basically a premise that can have most of the comedy characters of the era inserted into it, and there wouldn't be too much difference. Also, during the time when Daffy was the sidekick to Porky, rather than, like, one of the main guys, which now he's, like, the second banana as far as Looney Tunes characters go, next to Bugs. But to think, he started as a sidekick. The humor isn't as dependent on the personalities of Porky and Daffy, either. I mean... You could put Donald Duck in here and you'd get a pretty similar cartoon. You could put Gabby Goat in there. and it'd be, Oh, wait, actually, they I think there's one short where they did do that. Replaced, uh, it was originally a Porky and Gabby Goat short and they replaced, uh, redid it with Porky and uh, uh, Daffy. Yeah. yeah, I know the one you're talking about. If you're late one more time... Uh, if there's anything I can give Mel Blank credit for, it's like every time he screams something, it's almost always hysterical. I, I've like got a compilation video that I've bookmarked in YouTube that's just it's like just a compilation of multiple scenes of Mel Blank screaming, and I can watch it and almost always cheers me up. Anything else you want to add about this cartoon? Uh, really glad they got rid of those rings around Daffy's eyes. This really bugged me. Animation's good. There's a lot of good, like, if you just randomly pause it, there's almost always some really good rubbery expressions on Daffy. But yeah, I like the Ferdinand the Bull reference. Mm-hmm. So, let's flash forward a few years to Drafty Daffy in 1945, written by Lou Lilly. I, I just want to say, I absolutely loved this short when I was a kid, even though I di technically didn't get it. Like, I just all the wacky shenanigans and everything in it, I loved it. Though I didn't understand the whole draft concept at the time. I just knew that Daffy wanted to be away from this person. <laughs> I also thought this person was like a baby when I was a kid, but... There. So this is one of the last of the World War II propaganda shorts, as the various theaters of war were nearly all reaching victories for the Allied powers, which is reflected in the very first frames of the cartoon proper, as Daffy reads all about it in a newspaper. Specifically... A smashing frontal attack on the enemy rear. Good night, everybody! 
Wow! Someone at the Hayes Code office let that one slip past the radar. Oh, I just got a really weird Daffy frame. I'm going to send this to you real quick. All right. Daffy has uh, gained two mouths. Oh, my stars and garters. That's going to go on my alternate YouTube. I mean, my alternate uh, Twitter at some point. And just to make things even more egregious, Daffy references the enemy rear a second time. Uh, Again, Yekka Warner comment. Good night, everybody. But with this good news, Daffy literally sings the U.S.'s praises and clearly seems to want to emulate the servicemen abroad. But as he sings the Marine Corps hymn, the phone rings, the realization of which he works into his rhyme scheme. Nice touch. Also, I noticed a goof they did in this scene, um, other than somehow the uh, nightstand is appearing on the side of the wall and not on the floor. The background, uh, there's two parts where he's singing in his song where the background just shifts up randomly while he's singing. So, it's a phone call from the little man from the draft board, and he has a letter for Daffy. It takes a moment for this to really sink in, but when it does... Hey, a letter from the president, I might add. Oh, yes. Which president was this at this time? Um, who succeeded FDR? Truman. Oh, Truman. Okay. Also, he made a reference to uh, Theodore Roosevelt during his song, which is cool. Mm-hmm. The most badass president in existence, as far as I'm concerned. So, when it does sink in, Daffy's tune takes one hell of a 180. How could it be me? Why couldn't it have been you? Or you? Which is a mirror. (laughs) So, he literally has to get a hold of himself and performs some reconnaissance, making eye contact with the little man via a telescope. Little man has got tiny eyes (laughs) even when zoomed up the little man is what you might get if you asked an artist to draw elmer fudd and remove anything dangerous sinister seeming or otherwise indicating that he might be an antagonistic figure or you know made him into a baby (laughs) he's bald-headed bespectacled and too short for his clothes and his walk cycle is literally like a waddle Waddle it, even a penguin would look at it and say, you're exaggerating it, buddy. <laughs> so, with a howdy-doody, son, he makes his first attempt to present Daffy with his draft papers. But Daffy shuts the window and barricades the door with everything in the living room, plus a long strand of barbed wire. The, the frenetic energy in this whole cartoon is absolutely great. Racing through the house to get further from the little man... He finds himself upstairs, and Daffy guesses that he's gone. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Yeah, that's what Daffy's greeted by from the little man when Daffy lifts a window shade. And so, we have established the premise that will carry us through the rest of this cartoon. This is an escape and pursuit cartoon. Not to be confused with the chase formula of the cat and mouse cartoons that were all over animation history, or that are parodied by the Roadrunner shorts. No, this is more like something that Droopy would do later. Escape and Pursuit typically has the character we're supposed to be sympathizing with being the one doing the chasing, and their target is doing everything in their power to escape them, going to escalating lengths that are overcome by the pursuer without any logical rhyme or reason. They, the pursuer are the unstoppable force, not bound by any logic but whatever the cartoon finds funny. Now, we've seen this format when we looked at Heckle and Jekyll cartoons, and when we looked at the Mumbly Show, and some other famous examples include, like Pemmy said, Droopy's debut cartoon, Dumbhounded, and the Daffy and Porky vehicle, Yankee Doodle Daffy, which is a rare instance where the one being pursued isn't the antagonist. Well, Droopy short came later, and he did that more than one short, if I recall right. Um, uh, actually, the droopy, the first droopy one came first. Oh, it came before this. Yeah, oh, I stand back. Dumbhounded predates Yaki Doodle Daffy by a matter of a few months. Wow. Okay, never mind then. I had to look that up to be sure when I was uh, corresponding with the guys from that. That's not quite all, folks. 
Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know because, yeah, the well, I, I love this short as a kid. When I think of this routine, it's always that is always the droopy cartoons that do it that are always the first things that pop in my head. Naturally, you you don't think? Do you think by chance Bob Clampett saw Dumbhounded and was like, "Oh, well, if Tex can do that, I can do that." <laughs> Mercifully, he gave it a few years before he tried. I, I do want to say I love this scene though, where he he looks. He looks through the blind and sees the, the man from the draft board, pulls down the blind, and then puts on a beard and glasses, looks out of it again, and the man from the draft board has the same beard on. <laughs> that is cute. <laughs> so, this being a Looney Tunes short, here comes the escalation. Following that disguise bit, Daffy is completely manic. He's hastily packing some belongings and calls for a one-way ticket to the North Pole. And this is after he's ran literally across the walls. <laughs> also, another thing I love about Looney Tunes cartoons is the music they put in just kind of always amps up everything that's going on. Carl Stalling was their secret weapon, to be sure. But as Daffy gets downstairs, the little man is right there to ask, Is this trip really necessary, son? <laughs> now that slogan was a bit of government propaganda to influence travel behavior, since fuel was mo needed more for the war effort than, say, pleasure trips to the beach. Yes. Like a bolt from the blue, Daffy slams the door in the little man's face as the latter waddles to Daffy with the draft papers in hand, and Daffy rushes to the upstairs closet. And locks himself in the closet. So... Daffy's in the closet. Not touching that. <laughs> he's not. Nope. He's in the. He's in nope. the closet with the little, with the little man from the trap board. Nope. Nope. I am not touching that. I am not. I am not making reference to the notorious hip hopra in too many parts. It, it is is great though because he because like Daffy locks himself in there. He's convinced. He, he's convinced he's safe. He's like. Oh, I really pulled one over the guy at the draft board. It's like, oh, now I wouldn't say that. Oh, some great wild takes here after that. Now, second instance of I wouldn't say that. Yeah, I love love that scene where Daffy's eyes literally just turn to the back of his head. You got to give Clampett credit. He does some great freaking takes. Mm -hmm. We get another waddle and another door to the face. And via a trap door in the closet floor, Daffy leaves a bomb for the little man. Now rushing away in reverse, Daffy gets downstairs, plugs his ears, and the little man is right behind him with the bomb. Did you lose this, son, or something? I don't remember. Something like but, that. Yeah, but he gives gives Daffy back the bomb, and well, let's just say the little man from the draft board set him the set him up the bomb. <laughs> The resulting explosion sends Daffy to the ceiling, but we only see the aftermath as reflected in the little man's eye movements. Which, which is, is arguably good... funnier. Yeah, it's a really good gag. Daffy is so shaken up at this point, but he thinks the bomb blast got the little man. Pemmy? <laughs> oh, now I wouldn't no, say... No, no, you wouldn't say that! You wouldn't say that! <laughs> which is how Daffy cuts him off as a now positively crazed duck claws at the walls to try and get away. He dives into a safe. The little man follows, but Daffy slips out and locks the safe. And with devilish intent, he builds a whole wall with bricks, planks, wallpaper, a door, a light, and a home sweet home sign. <laughs> it's funnier watched than described. So long, Dracula! Yep. With that, Daffy races to the roof to get a rocket labeled Use in Case of Induction Only and seals his fate by rocketing straight down. <laughs> to, um, uh, <laughs> wait, he really is in a... <laughs> See, this is where I think the Hayes Code woke up. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't let him say hell, which, weirdly, I've heard a few, actually, kids' cartoons... Managed to pull that off in the 90s. 90s nothing. I'm looking at you, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, hey, yeah. Uh, I just remember Beast actually says it on the X-Men cartoon. 
says, uh, hell has no fury like a woman's horn. I guess he got away with it because it's a quote. Yeah. But hey, at least Daffy got rid of the little man. Oh, now I wouldn't say that. Yep. The little man is disguised as a little imp. And the chase begins once more. Even in death, the government gets what they're after. I guess you can say war is hell. Weirdly, I just remember the scene from Darkwing Duck where Darkwing was in hell. And it was like, who? and the devil's like, who am I? I'm... You are? And this is... It is? <laughs> We're going to take a short break. And when we return, two of Clampett's masterpieces. So stay tuned. After these messages, we'll be right back. On the next Penny and James podcast, flush with success with the Pink Panther, Patty Freeling set out about reinventing the classic chase format. What makes their version, the ant and the aardvark, stand out? A massive dose of industrial grade sass. Seriously, the aardvark might as well have been called an art snark. We'll see how they hold up in two weeks. So here we are with the final two appearances of Daffy Duck under Clampett's direction. And what a way to go out. These two cartoons are some of the zaniest in the library of Looney Tunes. And that's saying something. Absolutely insanity. Yeah, let's just dive right in with, chronologically, the first of the two, Book Review, written by Warren Foster. This was the last of a dying breed of cartoons centered around pictures and or objects coming to life when people aren't around. And perhaps this short was Clampett putting the last nail in the coffin. Since it's so over the top, how could you follow it up? Didn't Animaniacs do it? They did, but, you know, that would be decades later. Yeah, I also want to point out that uh, one of the animation credits is a certain Robert McKimpson, who would later go on to be a director. Yes, indeed. Two Roberts in one video. That's a Robert's a really good name. I actually like that name a lot. <laughs> so, a lot of the references in this cartoon are insanely dated. Hence, I will do my best to identify the real-life counterparts to each of the gags encountered here, so the curious can hit up their search engine of choice and find out more if they so desire. I'm just glad that you're willing to do all the research so I didn't have to. You're busy enough. I also noticed layouts and uh, backgrounds is by a cornet wood. Would that... A cornet and wood? Would that be horny? That's a corny joke, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Here we go. Light night at a bookstore at the strike of midnight that's heralded by a positively pickled cuckoo bird. The cover images of books all start coming to life. The complete works of Shakespeare. Yeah. Kind of uh, literally there. <laughs> and next we have Young Man with a Horn. Now this was a 1938 novel by Dorothy Baker, inspired by jazz artist Bix Biederbeck, who the art looks nothing like. This is instead intended to be trumpeter Harry James. Wow, he looks like Sinestro. <laughs> Little bit, yeah. But you know, our Harry James pastiche starts playing, leading into a raunchy tune for the Cherokee Strip, which only has the title in common with the semi-autobiographical book by Marquis James, derived from tales he told his daughter about growing up in the region of the same name in your home state of Oklahoma. Woo! Oklahoma reference. Nice. But no, this Cherokee Strip is of the more lurid variety. Yeah. Needless to say, the whistler, uh, Whistles. <laughs> yeah. This Whistler being the James Laver book from 1930, not the John Gresham novel. And we also get the howls of the sea wolf, Jack London's tome. And uh, the complete works of William Shakespeare has a complete breakdown over this. Yeah. And Henry VIII is particularly taken, but one cry of Henry! from radio character Mrs. Aldrich sends him running back home for corporal punishment. It's probably for the better because, you know, you don't want to, if 
Henry VIII is the one I'm thinking about. You really don't want to be his wife. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, uh, Henry Aldrich and family were hugely popular radio and film characters of this era. Hence, you hear this so frequently in Warner Brothers cartoons. But it's Frankie! Frankie! Yeah, a blue-faced, wheelchair-bound Frank Sinatra, to be precise. The joke here being how positively sickly thin the Swooner's crooner was back then. And he's the voice in the wilderness. Yeah, for the life of me, I couldn't find a concurrent use of that old phrase in any form of literature of the era, so, uh, womp womp. Well, I wouldn't expect Frank Sinatra being in the wilderness at all, if I'm to be 100% honest. But crooners got a croon, and swooners gonna swoon. Well, at least they're equal opportunity on this. Yeah. Louisa May Alcott's little women faint one by one. A young lady who apparently is freckles passes out, and the inhabitants of the play, Girls' Dormitory, go wild. Even Mother Goose gets on the act. Yeah, and a freshly hashed gosling. But incidentally... The lead character of the 1904 book Freckles by Gene Stratton Porter, which is what I'm presuming is being referenced, that protagonist is male. And eh, you know. Never let the facts get in the way of a gag. Even a staid, sober icon like Whistler's mother, courtesy of a book of famous paintings, aren't immune to Sinatra's charms. And the subject of the musical Lady in the Dark is especially animated in her interest. Despite only being a set of eyes. To be sure. She's got eyes for him. Mm-hmm. You think this was uh, Pinky moonlighting after being chomped by Pac-Man? <laughs> Possibly. Uh, this is Pinky's early work. Yeah. Now this swinging scene gets even livelier as trombonist James Dorsey joins in from the book Brass, at one point hooking the prominent Schnazola of W.C. Fields with his horn. While we get some... Uh, unfortunate stereotyping via drums along the mohawk, which quickly transforms into drummer Gene Krupa. I'm not sure if having him transform into a white guy is... You know what, I'm just not even gonna... Let's let's, let's skip over. Yeah. <laughs> the Pie-Eyed Piper is clarinetist and band leader Benny Goodman, as identified by the mice going, Hey, Benny! <laughs> even an Arkansas traveler no doubt referencing the movie, since The Traveler is a caricature of its star, Bob Burns, as a hillbilly, joins in on an improvised kazoo. That that kazoo looks... When I look at this, when a pause frame, while I'm going with this, while we're talking, it literally looks like he's on a bong. <laughs> I think moonshine is more his flavor. Fair. But all this noise gets all, all the way to the periodical stand, where a Looney Tunes comic features Daffy Duck on the cover. And he can't stand the racket. Nope, so he goes to Saratoga Trunk. That's the book by Edna Ferber. To get some uh, clothes and dress up like a JoJo character. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gene Krupa continues to bang on the drums and Robert Michael Ballantine's Hudson's Bay. So finally dressed, Daffy calls for them to stop and leaps in front of Danny Boy. His outfit, coiffed hair, and the Danny Boy title all clearly intended to invoke popular movie star Danny Kay. And the book itself is also likely referencing Ireland's most famous song, not by U2 or Van Morrison. <laughs> Daffy launches into a little monologue in a foul Russian accent, much like one Kay himself would employ, on the music of the old country. Soft music violins, and best of all, cucaracha. So round, so firm, so fully packed, so easy on the draw. I don't know. Personally, I would never be happy if I found a cucaracha in my house, but that's just me. That whole so round, so firm bit is the advertising slogan for Lucky Strike cigarettes at the time. Oh, boy. Yeah. Daffy's take on the song, though... Cucaracha! With his woohoos out of his system, Daffy then launches into the 1920s favorite Carolina in the Morning, 
still using the foul accent, as Little Red Riding Hood skips along to Grandma's house. Okay, before we get to this, I, I can't get over that pose that he stands in, the, the pose that he holds for a moment where he has a hand in the forward and the other one back. That is, like, so JoJo's Bizarre Adventure looking. <laughs> uh, it's just like, Daffy Duck, stand is powerhouse. Daffy Duck predicts JoJo's references that would not happen for decades later. Go figure. You probably don't know anything about it, but the whole joke with the stanzas are always named after songs. So it's, it's Powerhouse is one of the infamous background music songs they use in. Oh, I know all about the Powerhouse. It's <laughs> a next cartoon after all. Yep. But Little Red Riding Hood's appearance here is based on then-child actress Margaret O'Brien. I actually didn't yeah. know that. Daffy reaches Grandma's place first and honks the big bad wolf's nose. Cue the tempo upshift and Daffy trying to evade the continual biting of the wolf. Then Daffy warning Red in Kay's signature scat style, which won't be the last time we see this in a Warner cartoon. Yeah, I always wondered about this when I was a kid because I didn't know what I was referencing. I was like, what the heck are they doing? <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was funny, but yeah, it would take me years to figure out this was Danny Kay myself. And it would take mere moments for Daffy Duck to figure out that his leg is being seasoned. Salt and peppered, even. But when he does, it's the Clampet Corneal Catastrophe! This wild take of all wild takes, which was given its name in the series Tiny Toon Adventures, where Plucky Duck attempts it and gets stuck in the position just in time for class pictures. It's basically Daffy becoming one giant eyeball in shock from head to foot. I, I feel like there's a joke here, but I, I got it. Well, I guess your eye's not on the ball. Ha! So the chase is on through Hopalong Cassidy, then Uncle Tom's Cabin. The less said of that, the better. Yeah. Then Robert Sherwood's Petrified Forest, which triggers the requisite striking the axe against the Petrified Tree gag. I, <laughs> I don't like any of the jokes that are popping in my head right now, so... As a side note, the Uncle Tom's Cabin bit would be frequently uh, removed from television broadcasts. I'm just trying to avoid the uh, making another joke about wood. So, <laughs> The Police Gazette notices these attempted assaults, and the long arm of the law tosses the big bad wolf to the magazine section, where the Judge magazine, the Judge being a contemporary satire publication... Sentence him to Life magazine. I think even today most folks are familiar with Life. Yeah, it's still on news. It's still on newsstands, and it's all to the tune of Lucia de Lammermoor, which we last heard on this podcast being crooned by all of Sylvester's nine lives and then some. I, I'm just avoiding making the the comment. It's like you know this is fiction because because uh, the police actually did their job. <laughs> <laughs> So the wolf breaks out of life, making his Escape, another magazine. In fact, there's been multiple publications named Escape. So, uh, yeah. Including the uh, YouTube channel, The Escapist. Oh, but in his haste, he gets tripped thanks to Jimmy Durante's nose. So big. On the cover of the book So Long, which uh, actually, in real life, that book had nothing to do with the Hollywood funny man. Actually, it says So Big. Oh, huh. I got it up right now. Okay, well, so big then. <laughs> Either way, it has nothing to do with Durante. And as for the mistake, and I'm mortified. <laughs> the wolf slips down Skid Row and tries to avoid descending into Dante's Inferno. Also, I couldn't find a single publication contemporary to this film with the name Skid Row, but Dante's Inferno, that's been around for... A few couple centuries by that point. Yep. But just when it seems like he's about to break free, even the wolf can't resist swooning when Frankie is brought back into the scene. And we learn something new about the wolf. Oh, hey, that's a romantic voice. <laughs> Frankie. And he slides down Dante's Inferno. Daffy, Red, and others start dancing in celebration, loudly stomping away, and the wolf reemerges to get them to stop. Yes, sillies. <laughs> That's clearly invoking funny man Joe Besser. 
Yep. Well, it did. <laughs> the uh, the worst of the Stooges, <laughs> but not the worst of the Houndcats. No, so uh, definitely a bad Boo Boo replacement at Scare Bear, but that's a that's a story for another day. Yeah. <laughs> now it's also worth mentioning that the other dancing couples in that finale vanish from the scene before transitioning back to the wolf. Yep. Don't. Even the best make mistakes. Yep. When I or James point this out, we're just pointing them out because they're there. Um, we're not hating on anything here because these are absolute classics. I just want to say that because some people get very protective of these shorts. Yeah. We love these things and warts and all. And we do have to acknowledge those warts every once in a while. Yeah. I, I feel like to truly love something, you also have to acknowledge it's mistakes but that's just my personal opinion now as we alluded to earlier this was one of the last of its kind in theaters but the animaniacs team would tackle this sort of framework for the spiritual sequel video review set in a video rental store ironically that sort of location has aged worse than the bookstore locale of the short we just broke down funny how that works (laughs) yeah huh Makes me wonder if the reboot did one with the DVDs. I don't know. Actually, if they did one for the reboot, it'd probably be streaming services, now that I think about it. I mean, that's where the reboot was. (laughs) And now the doozy. If you thought that one was over the top, here comes Chrissy's favorite. So this review is is dedicated to her, because we love us some Chrissy. This is for you, Chrissy. It is The Great Piggy Bank Robbery also written by Warren Foster, and Clampett's penultimate short subject with Warner. He had actually left the company by uh, this point, and this would be released after the fact. But incidentally, it's the first time Daffy steps into a parody of an established media character, something he'd do several times under the pen of other directors. I like Chuck Jones. Yes. Also, we get a... Use of uh, the song Powerhouse that got mentioned earlier as Daffy stomps around waiting for the mailman, a la Felix the Cat. Mm. <laughs> Which I gotta say, after hearing the tune of Powerhouse being used for like Rube Goldberg devices in so many of these shorts, it kind of feels weird hearing it used in something that's not even remotely mechanical. <laughs> I can also tell you that I was the same way waiting for my Nintendo Power magazines when I was a kid. Also, we get uh, Daffy saying uh, what would later become Sylvester's catchphrase of suffering succotash. Yes. Perhaps this is where the Press Your Luck team came up with it when they uh, included it as one of the questions on the show. And then Mel Blanc called in a Sylvester to correct them. Yep. Daffy technically said it first, but it wasn't really Daffy's catchphrase for him. It was more like a throwaway line. For Sylvester, it was a catchphrase and for roman reigns it was an embarrassment yeah you hear suffering succotash it's one of those three sadly why did they think that was a good thing for him to say well once the mail gets there daffy tosses everything away collecting his comic book it's a dick tracy compilation and seemingly daffy loves that man Daffy is so into the tales of daring against the likes of Noodle Nose, he eventually starts imagining himself in the role of Tracy, knocking himself silly with an errant punch. Cue the dream sequence. Oh, I... So, what we're getting from this is Daffy likes dick. Sorry, I had to say it. Feel free to cut that one. (laughs) What? Drat. Drat, drat, double drat. So, in his fever dream, he imagines himself as Duck Twacy, and even in silhouette against the window of his uh, office, there's some points where he actually resembles the square-jawed detective. He's almost always drawn by the by a profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Daffy's intimidatingly trying to pin something on what we presume is a suspect. But he's just playing pin the tail on the donkey. And cheating. What an ass. Soon the phones are ringing off the hook. 
of all about missing piggy banks, including a, an extra long phone that's for long distance calls. And a French phone. I would say something in French, but I, I do not remember my one year of high school French. I know none beyond the most obvious uh, merci beaucoup and bonjour. None of those things help with the context. No. But Daffy scorns everyone saying that they wouldn't have this issue if they just put their piggy banks in a safe place like he does, which is, you know, literally a safe. And of course, the safe is empty. Didn't we just go through this? <laughs> well, needless to say, since this now affects Daffy directly, he is gone from not concerned about these piggy bank robberies to actually worried and panicking and knows that he needs to call Duck Twacy, the best detective. So, he calls Duck Twacy, and he answers, and tells Duck Twacy to get on the case, and he's like, Wait a minute! I'm Duck Twacy! So, the search begins. He calls a cab, and tells him to follow that car, but doesn't get in the cab. Yeah, we've seen this gag several times before, but this time... It's intentional on the part of the person ordering the taxi to follow the car. Keeps them on their toes. <laughs> that was actually a pretty good gag, I will admit. Yeah, that had been done so many times, it's, I'm glad the subversion was included. Also, I want to say, it's, is it just me or does it feel weird that uh, Daffy's got gloves in this? Somewhat. I guess it makes it easier on the animators. It just looks like he stole Bugs' gloves when he wasn't looking. Daffy's search leads him to bump into Sherlock Holmes. Literally. Get off this beach. Get off this beach, Sherlock. I'm in charge, or whatever he says. I'm working the side of the street. However, we, we get a cable car which says, To the gangster's hideout on it, which Daffy, of course, is going to take. And a brief cameo of uh, good old Porky Pig here. He's yep. probably like, we, we, It's a paycheck. <laughs> yeah. And of course, it's Daffy's dream, so he's going to see people he recognizes in it. It's a short trip, and the gangster's hideout is even more obvious with neon signs and searchlights. See, if that's happening, either those gangsters are really dumb, or they're really strong and no no one can take them out. Or both. So they're either so they're both dumb and confident? <laughs> dumb and strong. Oh. Dumb, strong and confident. Even worse. Oh. <laughs> So Daffy spots a rug that says trapdoor, and he figures, oh, how obvious. I'll just ring it from the other side. Nope, that's where the trapdoor is. Don't! Yeah. Was that trip really necessary? Yes. And this being 1946, uh, I don't think anybody's going to complain. So Daffy can finds a set of footprints to follow, even picking one up at a point. Falls it completely up a wall and, da and across a ceiling, because... Nothing is impossible for Dwight Twicey. He assumes that this is the human fly, but upon reaching a mouse hole, he concludes the culprit is Mouse Man. Come out, you rat! That's a big rat. Yeah, go back in, go back in. Daffy runs, but suddenly he's surrounded by numerous criminals. And honestly, aren't that far removed from what you would get in Dick Tracy. To be sure, in fact, some of these are, are actually spoofs of existing Dick Tracy rogues of the era. Snake Eyes is supposedly a spoof of BB Eyes. 88 Teeth is a spoof of 88 Keys. Pickle Puss is apparently Prune Face. Double Header is a two-headed baseball player spoof of Tulsa Half-and-Half Tuzan. What was the... Oh, shoot, what was the cat? It was Hammerhead and then... We had Hammerhead, Pussycat Puss... Batman, uh, who is... Yeah, no, I was just thinking Pussycat Puss looks like a possible uh, appearance of Sylvester cameo. Pretty close. And we got Pumpkinhead, Neon Noodle, Jukebox Jaw, Wolfman, and, well, Daffy, while sounding intimidated at first, gathers up his gusto and declares, You're all under arrest! Yeah, that had no effect whatsoever. Yeah. The chase is on, and... We get an actual Dick Tracy villain that's not a parody. Yeah, we get Flat Top, who has planes Taking take off. off on his Flat Top. <laughs> yeah. Flat Top's also smoking a cigarette. This is the only thing I can think of that would 
be keeping this cartoon off of HBO Max. Well, they could edit it out, but, you know. Yeah. Or just cut that scene out. Pinned to a wall from, from all of this, Daffy is cornered by Rubberhead, who rubs him out! This is absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, Daffy immediately reappears from being erased behind a closet door. And then Pumpkinhead moves in, guns a-blazing, and this is actually kind of scary for a Warner Brothers cartoon. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I mean, they all have to have their moments. I mean, I can think of Disney cartoons that freaked me out, too, So, as a kid. Oh, for sure. Daffy tosses a hand grenade out of Pumpkinhead, and he becomes a stack of pumpkin pies. 35 cents each. From there, all of the villains try to get Daffy, who is in the door by but all kind of get stuck jumping through the doorway and Daffy literally falls apart to get out from them. He slams the door shut and now Daffy opens fire and literally kills commits murder and kills all these gangsters. They tumble but, out of the closet akin to the stateroom scene from the Marx Brothers movie A Night at the Opera and as a freeze frame bonus a buxom woman is amongst them. And, and they say modern cartoons are too violent. <laughs> One mobster survived, though. Neon Noodle. He sneaks and... up on Daffy, but Daffy manages to out-wrestle him and turn him into a neon sign that reads, Eat It Joe's. Yes, of course. Yeah. So with all the mobsters dispatched, Daffy finds the piggy banks, including his, and he begins kissing it. He's just that happy about it. Yeah, this is the point where uh, he doesn't realize that he's starting to wake up. And he's holding on to an actual barnyard pig. And uh, borderline making out with her. And the pig likes it. I love that duck! Uh, is, is it just me or does it feel a little weird that we get like a barnyard kind of pig after literally seeing Porky not too long ago? Just a bit. I can't blame Chrissy for liking that one. That one's really good. It is. It is. And oh, the number of times it would be homaged. Again and again. Yeah, they even had a Tiny Toons episode where they did that. Yep, the return of Pluck Twacy. There was a Looney Tunes sequel to this, Night of the Living Duck, which had Daffy reading a uh, horror science fiction comic, Hideous Tales. And Pumpkinhead cameoed in it. Yep. And, of course, in Batman the Brave and the Bold, the episode Legends of the Dark Might, featuring the Batmite, would have him doing this opposite members of Batman's rogues gallery, ranging from the luminaries like Joker, Riddler, and Penguin to losers like Kite Man, Zebra Man, and the Polka Dot Man. That, that reminds me, there was a... I forgot, was Tin-Eyed Man in that scene? He's not on the list. Darn. Because I, I, I do remember they did a they did another short where it was not Batman Brave and the Bold. It was just a random DC related short where it was like Lois Lane trying to get uh, an interview from Batman. and it, But it actually had Kevin Conroy voicing Batman for it. And it, it was just like she's chasing him down no matter what he does. And he eventually just gives in and gives her an interview, a really brief interview. And it's like... Uh, what's the scariest guy in your uh, rogues gallery? And Batman actually said Tin-Eyed Man. And I was like, wow, really? <laughs> well, depending on the version, considering one version of the Tin-Eyed Man has an eye on the tip of each finger. God, that just sounds painful. I mean, can you imagine every time you, like, touch something, you're practically, like, poking your eye? No kidding. So, now for our postscript. Clampett would leave Termite Terrace in May of 1945, most likely due to the new management of Eddie Selzer having considerable creative differences with Bob's way of doing things. And wasn't willing to give Bob special treatment like uh, Schlesinger did. Yeah. Briefly turning up at Screen Gems, Bob's next real big break would be in television projects, starting with the 1949 puppet show Beanie and Cecil. Which eventually would go into its own animation. Yep. It was indeed a Bob Clampett cartoon! Yep. Which, uh... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And when Associated Artists Productions acquired much of the pre-1948 Warner cartoons, Clampett was brought in to catalog them, and he would be the focus and narrator of the documentary Bugs Bunny Superstar. And would give himself way more credit than he... Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that documentary that ably illustrates Clampett's uh, notorious foible his desire to be famous at all costs. He'd garner mm. significant animosity from former co-collaborators like Mel Blanc, Frizz Freeling, and especially Chuck Jones. Left him out of the Bugs Bunny movie. <laughs> with his penchant for taking credit for things that he, Bob Clampett, didn't do. For instance, while Clampett did draw the very first Porky Pig illustration... It was Frizz Freeling who drew the model sheet, not Clampett, as Clampett claimed in that very Bugs Bunny Superstar documentary. Yeah. <laughs> as Pemmy just said, Jones pointedly left Clampett out of Bugs's Several Fathers segment in the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie in response to these behaviors. Yeah, the fact, the fact that even Mel Blanc talked negative about him says a lot. As such, since Jones and Freeling were the main influences on much of the Looney Tunes-related media in the 1980s and going into the 90s, Clampett's work seemed to be sidelined to a degree. It would be the 50s shorts that would dominate specials and compilation movies, and those characterizations of Bugs and Daffy that would be at the forefront of Warner Media in general. Yeah, for a long time, it's kind of like the Chuck Jones designs are what became it until, like, Fairly recently, kind of. It's also probable that Clampett's shorts being held for television rights by AAP and then later Turner Broadcasting was another major factor in those matters. Not that it matters anymore, because it's all owned by Warner. But if I had to guess, I suppose it was Steven Spielberg and the team behind Tiny Toon Adventures who started turning matters around for Clampett's legacy. In addition to what we discussed, the, the Duck Twacy uh, revival with Plucky and the Clampett corneal catastrophe wild take, Clampett's Dodo would be revived as the Frank Welker voiced Go-Go Dodo, and the gremlin from Clampett's Falling Hair would make his return in an episode where Montana Max stole a big gold nugget from the core of the Earth. Not to mention Animaniacs doing, the, uh, doing their own take on the book review, as we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think this is meant to be a specific statement on Clampett in particular, since Tiny Toons would also revive Bosco and Honey from the Harmonizing Era, and the Animaniacs would do something on, on the Bosco replacement Buddy, and so on. It's more just about the history, which, uh, fortunately, Tiny Toons was smart enough to uh, kind of convert Bosco and uh, Honey into uh, dogs. Yeah. <laughs> But it did start a shift, a shift that would continue when Time Warner bought Turner Broadcasting, reuniting the Warner Animation libraries once and for all. And so over time, Clampett's influence would be felt in more and more Looney Tunes projects, ranging from Daffy Duck being chased by Brandon Frazier in Looney Tunes Back in Action, where he really lets his Daffy side shine. <laughs> to the very Clampett-esque Looney Tunes cartoons, which debuted on HBO Max. It is kind of weird, though, because it's like the Looney Tunes cartoons, like, is they're totally vibing with Clampett's style, like, 100%. But at the same time, we got Space Jam 2, and then the uh, current, uh, uh, for the uh, 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers, they did these uh, shorts called Acne Fools, and those are using the, like, Joe's design still. Uh, that that's kind of what happens when these characters take such divergent turns. I I guess we even it, see it with Mickey Mouse now. Yeah, because the uh, the Paul Rudish Mickey shorts are using like kind of referencing the old Mickey design, while uh, like while other stuff for more younger kids is still using kind of the modern Mickey designs. It is weird how that happens. I guess that's. One of the side effects of being a legacy character. Yeah. 
Which, by the way, I just want to say, if you haven't seen the uh, the Acne Fools shorts, I recommend them. They're very cute little dedications. To, they're really cute little Looney Tune dedications to uh, the various things that Warner has under their wing. At the very least, it looks like some animators are having some fun over at Warner for once. Yeah. That, and I don't know. It's the only time I expect I'll ever get to see the Looney Tune characters like dressed as two different Hanna-Barbera properties, namely Scooby-Doo and the Flintstones. We will return to Daffy uh, on his own eventually. Uh, I'm just not sure which director. Do we want to do Frizz Freeling or Frank Tashlin or maybe Arthur Davis? McKimson. McKimson's an option, yes. Maybe Tex Avery? Also good. Though, I don't know. If I if I wanted to do something with Tex Avery, I, I would... While he did a lot over at Warner, I don't know. For some weird reason, my brain always instantly goes to, like, MGM for him. His peak was at MGM, for sure. I, I know the last thing he uh, created, too, which was uh, Quickie Koala for Hanna-Barbera. But when we do return to Daffy uh, at the earliest... It will definitely be rabbit season. <laughs> Duck season. Rabbit season. Duck season. Rabbit season. Duck season. Duck season. Rabbit season. I say it's duck season, and I say fire! <laughs> this gag only works when you have a beak. Don't worry, James. I'll, I'm sure we can reattach your head. Well... I guess that's where the cereal budget is going this week. Reattaching my head. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Hey, look, I got a head. See ya. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.